Shop. Welcome to Talking Shop, the podcast where I, Brian Gray, dive into my guests' relationship with their work to learn why they love to do what they do. Joining via Google technology is 15-plus year improv veteran, co-founder of the renowned Philadelphia improv team Rare Bird Show, and creator of Matt And, a show in which he improvises a 20 to 45 minute long form set, a minute long form set, with an audience member who has never done improv before. I've seen the show three times and each has been a unique and completely mesmerizing experience. I brought Matt out to Pittsburgh and had the delightful opportunity to host him, which involved hours of talking shop enough to convince me to do so for all to hear on this podcast. He also introduced me to the gem that is Mystic Pizza. It is my great pleasure to introduce uh, to the show, Matt Holmes. Hey, Matt. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks so much for being here. Um, I'm really looking forward to this. So I'll start with just a little bit of history insofar as it, it relates to how you have approached the work. Um, as I mentioned, you uh, have been performing with Rare Bird Show since 2003, Uh how has that experience shaped the way you, you play or, or think about improvisation? Um, I think it's been... Uh, I, I think that I've had a different experience doing improv than the average person who joins a very big group or a, a troupe or a theater. Um, we formed Rare Bird Show as just sort of like there's nothing else around for us to join, so we have to make our own thing and uh, uh, improvising with a small number of people really gives gets you used to having a lot of stage time having a lot of input Uh, we work without a coach or a director uh, but we're uh, lucky enough to have some input from Teachers through workshops and festivals, uh, you know, working in small amounts of time with great people uh, from throughout the country, Canada, um, other international teachers who really imparted a lot of wisdom on us while we were still pretty new to it all. So, uh, how, how many people were on Rare Bird Show? When you started, we, you know, we started uh, with kind of a, a core group of four. Had a, a lot of people kind of come and go, just sort of check us out. But uh, and we ended up with uh, being three people for like the bulk of our ten-year career. Yeah, and, and um, without a coach or a director, maybe you can. Describe a little bit how, like, what was your rehearsal process like? Uh, In the very beginning, we all brought different kinds of experience. Uh, Mine was more in the short-form realm, um, and uh, Alexis Simpson brought um, a lot of, like, long-form and sketch. Uh, Chris Conklin brought um, the same. He had done a big stint at... um, UCB and had brought sort of long form back to his college group uh, and Nathan Edmondson had done more with um, theatrical improv so he was doing more as as an actor in, in theater than in improv improv and I think that all those different backstories kind of fed into each other uh, and we kind of just took turns teaching each other uh, individual exercises or lessons for the day um, and kind of smush together our own style of improv that was kind of unique to us. Um, we ended up doing, you know, almost entirely long form, but it had sort of a uh, an accessibility to it that I think a short form background brings. Uh, it was a lot, it was pretty tight stuff. Uh, at least that's what some reviews said pretty early on. And I think uh, having that background in 
sketch that informed what we were doing was uh, influential in that. And also, uh, I think we were trying, at least, to be pretty grounded and um, character-based uh, from the start, as opposed to being very jokey or hammy or um, having a lot of highfalutin formats or frameworks uh, that were more important than just, you know, theater that just so happens to be improvised. Did you have a culture within the group or a mechanism by which you could give uh, feedback, not necessarily notes, but, you know, hey, that that went really well, or should we try this, or whatever? Yeah, I'd say it was just discussion. There wasn't anything too formal. There wasn't like, okay, now we're going to do notes. It was just... Um, Hey, I you know took a workshop and I'd like to bring this and here's an exercise. Uh, let's try something different. Uh, it was a, a constant conversation for years about you know, what we were doing and what we were going to do next. You mentioned Alexis Simpson, who was on Rare Bird Show with you. Uh, she she said of, of working with you that Matt always comes along for the ride to the weirdest, most wonderful places. Do you see this as a defining characteristic of your work, that you're willing to sort of go wherever the scene is pointing you? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that that was a big um, stylistic development of Rare Bird Show, that we kind of got into the realm of the absurd or the surreal or just by the nature of it being improvised, that it's, it could go weird places. We did go weird places. Um so I think that that really got ingrained into me during that Rare Bird Show period uh, and sticks around now where I see other improvisers kind of play it safe or just aren't so comfortable if things get weird and it doesn't phase <laughs> me at all at this point. As we are talking a little bit more about your current work, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about Matt and uh, maybe a lot of it. Uh, so, because the first time I saw that show, I really felt like it was unlike any improv show I had seen. Uh, not just because of the format, uh, but I think because of the way it was obvious to me. You had thought a lot about how to improvise with someone who had never improvised before uh, in a way that maybe didn't always follow the quote-unquote rules of improv, or I don't know. I'm just interested in it, uh, and it was it was a really great experience for me. Um, I, I talked to you got me in touch with Melissa Cruz Gonzalez, who was one of your audience members, uh, who got up on stage and did the show with you. And here's how she described her experience: uh, "Quote: I was so nervous I could hear my heart beating in my ears. The most memorable moment for me was hearing the laughter of the audience as Matt and I performed." And then the roar of applause when the show was finished. I felt great doing something completely out of my comfort zone. It was a wonderful experience that I still share with people to this day. Um, so I, I wonder like how much of that was something that you set out for intentionally to provide that sort of transformative experience for an audience member uh, versus you just thinking, oh, this is, this is a fun thing I want to try, uh, and that happens to be a pleasant side effect. <laughs> Well, I'd like to think that uh, I had more development and pedagogy involved, <laughs> but it really just kind of materialized on its own. Uh, a lot of the components of how I improvise, regardless of who I'm improvising with, came about before I started doing that and. Um, a lot of the rules in how people get into, um, how they approach improv, how they look at a scene, what they see as the purpose of improv. Um, I always had some issues with that. So I've been developing my own style. Um, and I think that that kind of translates into me working with an audience member really well. Because uh, a lot of what I focused on is that you really don't need all those rules that are kind of counterintuitive. And... Uh, an audience member isn't going to know those rules, so it works out fine. Um, you didn't set out like the design of Matt Ann wasn't to to show that off or to solve that problem. You're saying, 
No, I just thought it could be another project to do. It started at a time in the Philly improv scene development where there were now a lot of people improvising and a lot of different um, overlapping side projects, mm-hmm. you'd say. So I thought, you know, that could be something that I might be interested in doing as a, a special project. Um, and then the pieces just sort of fit together and worked so well that I was like, I guess that's the project, is me with an audience member each time. You mentioned when we were chatting in uh, Pittsburgh that you have a very sort of atypical rehearsal process for that show. And I know that's something that occurred to me also watching it was like, how do you practice for a show like that? Um, And you said you basically work with people who have a variety of skills in areas that might come up on stage. Um, Maybe you could give some examples of some of the skills you've learned and talk about how, how you do practice for the show? Sure. The bottom line is I really don't (laughs) practice for the show because I really can't. Um, I've thought about how I might um, create some sort of regular um, improv practice for myself just so that I'm I'm not only improvising when I hit the stage with a total stranger who's never seen improv before. Um, But Apart from that, I've done sort of a um, like research and development for myself outside of that. I wouldn't call it like practice specifically for Matt and, but it's just been you know as long as I'm not practicing, what else could I be doing? So that's involved um, you know just taking regular um, sporadic workshops as they come up, things that could be of interest. I've looked for things that could be of particular interest. Uh, I did some exploration of clowning, and I think um, the looseness of the format uh, or non-format, that's just, you know, me with an audience member. I'm not doing a herald. I'm not doing a deconstruction. Anything could happen. So I think clowning um, kind of informs that. I've forever been a little uh, cautious and um, uncomfortable when if we got into doing accents <laughs> I would think like oh I, if I do an accent I'm going to lose my accent or it's going to change so I uh, consulted with a dialect coach to kind of break down and engineer what those components are um, I worked with somebody on uh, dance you know in case that comes up uh, I worked with somebody on different kind of sports terminologies and uh, components in case that comes up. Uh, I'm currently working my way through reading the dictionary cover to cover. I think having a, a bigger vocabulary really helps me in case something comes up. Um, just a lot of different things like that, uh, almost like a like a graduate course in being able to pretend. Yeah, that's it's fascinating. Um, if we can dig into a couple of those, I'm just interested in like what actually transpires. So, like, if you talk to a dialect coach who I, I imagine is used to coaching, you know, actors who are playing, uh, you know, I, I have to play a, a this British prince, and it's this dialect of, you know, English, and so they work on that sort of dialect, whereas I imagine you're just saying, like, I want to be able to speak any accent that could arise. <laughs> like, what what is what what is that actual, you know, interaction sort of come down to? Yeah, whenever I approach somebody to try to um, teach me something, I realize that I don't know what I'm asking for. It's always <laughs> something that just comes up that is the most use for me. Uh, when I worked with the dialect coach, I talked about my situation and and said, you know, um, I just want to learn more about dialects and accents and voices and how that works. We ended up kind of dissecting that field into um, the, like the cultural components of it, um, the different sounds that your voice makes and why. 
different parts of your body, um, different sounds that people make in different, if they're used to different languages. Um, and then, you know, me just kind of coming up with almost like rules for myself. So one was whatever accent I make, uh, just stick with it. Um, <laughs> which yeah. is a helpful kind of thing for my, uh, to remember for myself. Yeah, that's great. If it's a, if it's not a perfect Jamaican accent, maybe there's a reason for it. Maybe that'll <laughs> come up. It, it doesn't matter. My show isn't perfect accent performance. <laughs> it's an improv show where that happens to come up. Uh, like the more attention I draw to it, especially if it's a negative, um, the more it's just something else I have to deal with where I don't have to let it derail me. Yeah, I think it, it makes sense. I mean, it's interesting because in a way you, you are trying to become more of an expert than probably many who attempt accents in a improv show. So you want to like do that with some degree of, you know, uh, truth and respect, uh, but at the same time giving yourself permission to not do it perfectly. Yeah, I think ultimately it's just me, you know, taking the time that I have because I'm not doing like a regular practice, taking that time to study something else that might come up. You've also uh, assisted uh, at least three other people with a similar version of the show. So people who you, you said contacted you to say, hey, I'm trying to do this sort of uh, bring an audience member up on stage show. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what goes into helping other people uh, put on a show that's uh, similar to what you do? Yeah, I had um, kind of out of the blue, somebody, uh, a guy named Neil Curran, uh, who's in Dublin, Ireland. Uh, I think he just had a similar idea. He's an improviser <laughs> there. And uh, Googled something along the lines of doing improv with an audience member, found my show, and reached out to me to say, I'm looking to do something like that. You know, do you have any advice? Um, after that, I, I've had a few people who um, saw me perform and said, I'd like to give that a try. Can you give me any advice? I think in all those cases, it's been really helpful for me to step back and say, like, what am I doing? Uh, <laughs> um, and it's been really cool to see how people do shows that are similar but different and unique to them. Um, a guy named Vinny Francois in Montreal does a show that is sort of like a, a one-person life game, if people are familiar with um, Keith Johnstone's life game. So it's mm. it's in structure kind of similar to what I do in Matt and, but it's also similar to something else. Um, but yeah, ultimately I stepped back and said, okay, I came to the realization that it's helpful, or I, th I think it's helpful for the audience member to have a full picture of what's going to happen, mm. kind of... Um, proactively defining like boundaries or parameters for them, how long it's going to be, what do they have to do. Uh, I, I explained that they can do and say whatever they want, and it's all my responsibility to make it work. I sort of explained that we'll play different characters in different scenes, like that the lights will go up and down. I started working with musicians, and I explained that now. Um, so that they're not surprised when that <laughs> happens. Uh, yeah. Tell them like, the lights will go down at the end and that'll be the end. Um, so I think that sort of realization came about through having somebody ask me what they should do and me sort of clarifying what I do and now doing that more on purpose. Right. That makes sense. Uh have you have you found that there are 
like, have you ever had trouble getting volunteers? And maybe some of this gets into what you were just saying, but I find, like, even in short-form shows, sometimes there's that moment where no one wants to get up, and they're just going to be up for just a few minutes, let alone to, like, do a 20-minute long-form set. Yeah, I've kind of figured out the best way to trick people into getting on stage. (laughs) And then once they're on stage, sort of nudging them into agreeing to just sort of stay there. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think a big part of the success of the show is having like a reliable audience, having a, an audience that isn't just other improvisers Um, as, uh, as I've toured it around, it works in some cases better than other cases. Uh, (laughs) When I do shows in Philly, it works in some cases better than other cases. So now I know how important it is for me to have like a nice big audience that I can feed off of, that my partner um, you know, knows that the show is going well. They can hear that laughter and applause, and that there's enough people that I can pick somebody out who can come mm-hmm. on stage with me. Uh, so and uh, do you feel it's... Like, in a way, it sounds like it, it's sort of like a when a hypnotist has to go through and say, find the right audience member, uh, like, are you a bit discerning or for you, it's more just setting up the, like, I'm not going to do a show where I know it's, you know, 95% comedians in the the audience in the first place. Uh, well, it's hard to do any improv show where it's not mostly other improvisers in the audience, but yeah, it's, it's more like that where I just want to make sure that there's, um, enough of a crowd that it'll be a good show. Uh, but I'm not discerning at all. I always just pick the first person who ri- I mm-hmm. see their hand. Uh, and um, uh, one last thought on Matt and, and then we'll dive into another topic. Uh, the, when I've seen, I, I, that was one of my initial thoughts too, is like, that must be such a really, unique experience for the person involved in the show have you had situations in which you got feedback from that person or you knew on stage that they were sort of like did not have a good time or did not get what was going on or or something like that or do you have enough mechanisms in place to just make sure that it's smooth sailing i think part of the show is built in that it's a challenge that they're stepping outside of their comfort zone and doing something weird and new and fun. But I don't think I've had anybody who's really hated it. Um, Usually I can't get them on stage if that would be the case. (laughs) Okay. Okay, Yeah. Um, So uh, I wanted to talk maybe more broadly about your, your improv philosophy and, and point of view. Um, You, you mentioned maybe the, good place to start as you had mentioned earlier breaking the rules uh maybe you could talk a little bit more about what what that means so what are the rules that you feel are need to be broken uh and or are not helpful to think about and and like how did you come to to you know that own conclusion for yourself sure um i think from the very start of me doing improv and probably for a lot of other people, the first thing that you hear are the rules of improv, whether it's yes and, or don't ask questions, or in the first three lines, you have to get out all the details so that you know what's who you are and who the other person is and get everybody's names and all of those details. Um, you get a lot of rules to try to remember, and a lot of them are... Uh, negative too so not only um, remember this and remember that and remember a bunch of things um, don't do this and don't do that but never really here's what you should do so Mm. um, for years and years now (laughs) my whole improv experience has been being presented kind of the out of the box here's how you learn improv um rules and guidelines and me being like that's that doesn't work for me let me see if i can kind of reverse engineer what will work for me um 
and why uh, why some of these things are confusing or counterintuitive or counterproductive and how I can just sort of boil it down to um, if you're going to do anything, here's what you should do. Uh, yeah. And for me, that a, a lot of that came out of, you know, one, just kind of dismissing the rules. A lot of what we did with Rare Bird Show was like, let's just play and have fun and see what works and not really, A, not really think about the rules, but then B, we got to a point where like, so what is game? Uh, we were really connected, luckily, again, to be uh, pretty hooked up with the UCB theater um, at that time. Uh, we'd gone up and seen them. People had come down to work with the colleges that we had been involved with. Um, so um, we were taking workshops in our first year as Rare Bird Show with some bigwigs uh, from UCB be and trying to get like what is game what should we be doing in improv now that we're like comfortable doing it after yeah. you know some years doing it in college um and starting to do it professionally <laughs> as for a bird show um what is game and i never really got a clear picture um so part of that is being you know i never went through a like curriculum at a place like UCB or IO or second city to get a clear picture of that. It was always uh, kind of detached from the rules. And the, like I said, the rules not really working for me. So I spent years and years kind of dissecting um, what exactly is game? What do people mean? What works or what doesn't work? Uh, and eventually got to the point of if you're doing anything in improv, uh, step one, just get out there and do something. Don't hesitate. Don't think too much about doing it right or doing it wrong or trying to be funny or trying to be clever. And then step two, what do you do next? Rather than spitballing or, or starting a whole bunch of different um, tracks, just do more of what you've already done and what we've already invested in. And then step three, heightening, expanding, kind of ballooning that out so that you're not just hitting one note again and again and again, but you're exploring and um, developing that. So do something, do it more, do it bigger. And I think that's really helped me to have that pinned down and defined and forget everything else uh, and since I've been uh, teaching what I sort of taught myself, I've gotten a, a very positive response from people who either have been as confused as I've been in learning the rules and learning the standard way of, of learning improv, or complete beginners who catch on really quick and right away are doing some real solid scenes after you know, at the end of a beginner's workshop um, where I think if I think they wouldn't be doing so well uh, with the standard method. And also I don't think I could teach the standard method. So, well. <laughs> yeah. So you, so uh, cause that was part of my interest as well as like, can, could this be the, the baseline or the only set of rules um, talk to Kevin Mullaney a bit about this as well. And uh, it sounds like you've seen this happen in practice where you, you can go to be beginners, um, brand new people, and say, do something, do it more, um, uh, heighten it, uh, do it bigger. And that is all they need to sort of jumpstart them into to good scene work, that there's that's a successful path. I think so. I if you had to ask me, do you need to learn like the wrong way first and then <laughs> learn a better way? I would say no. I think you can start people um, focusing on what is most important to them as opposed to what's most important to you. And to a complete beginner, they're worried about doing it wrong. They're worried about being funny. They're worried about like 
what are the rules or, you know, what should I do? And I think you can start them off kind of uh, building the scene from the inside out from themselves first. Out of what I from the. Uh, unspoken to me uh, and influenced the, the way that I think about it and the way that I teach. Uh, and it really seems to, like I said, work uh, for me when I'm working with complete beginners to have them, you know, right away get into creating scenes, creating characters, and even almost automatically making game as opposed to having it be like a uh, like an algorithm or an equation that they have to solve. <laughs> yes. Uh, speaking of algorithms and equations, I'm probably going to ask you uh, the engineer brain way of asking this question. So, like, you, we've established that that this is a necessary, uh, or, or like th- that with these rules, you know, we can these simple rules we can can make good scene work. Do you, do you feel like it's it's Sufficient? Like, is it enough to advance someone and do, you know, a whole lot of really great scenes? Or is there learning kind of on top of that? Um, you know, so you, you sort of take an interesting tack, which is instead of, uh, well, you do learn a lot more improv, but also adding, you know, dialects and uh, um, sports, med, like the things you don't know. Um, but yes, is there, would there eventually be stuff to pile on top of that? Or is that simple approach more or less what you need to to have fun and do scenes as you grow as an improviser, do you think? That's a great question. I think what I've just talked about with do something, do it more, do it bigger, is um, like less than a, a fundamental, like uh, sub-baseline um, to <laughs> yeah. just like, you know, what is improv? You're uh, making stuff up as you're performing it as opposed to crafting something and then performing it where, you know, improv is that the process is the product. Uh, the end result is seeing the, the creative endeavor unfold. Um, and I, my approach to getting people into that, uh, is with those fundamentals of not worrying about like the structure of short form versus long form or, the improv world versus improv as a tool for actors and directors. Um, but just no matter what, when you, when you're on a stage and you go to create something in that moment, no matter what, you're a character in a scene, you know, in a setting, uh, you're going to have dialogue to say and actions to do. Um, and that's all you're doing, uh, with those steps that I talk. Um, you are also an incredibly nice and generous person. Uh, Alex Gross, uh, who has played with you and was on a, a team that you coached, said of you that you are, quote, very patient and kind to the people you perform with. Uh, I feel the same way having had you uh, hang out for a weekend here in Pittsburgh. Uh, do you feel like this also makes your work on stage better or helps you as an improviser? Uh, I think it's a very nice thing to say and I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I think, like I said, I, as somebody who for years was trying to do improv and liked it, but was confused um, by how it worked and kind of, you know, the things that, were good seems to be by accident and the things that were bad were despite trying to know all the rules and do everything perfectly. So I think I have a, maybe a soft spot for people who are trying to do improv in the middle of nowhere, uh, with videos and books, uh, and no access to anybody who's, you know, taking classes, uh, at second city or UCB or IO or anywhere else. Um, I have a soft spot for people who are, um, you know, uh, high school or college improv groups, just kind of trying to figure it out on their own. Um, 
and yeah, I guess that that might um, kind of play into me working with the absolute beginner, which is somebody who's not a performer and not really trying to be a performer, but <laughs> finds themselves in that situation where for the next you know twenty five minutes you are a performer. Right. So yeah, it has led you to this this interesting show, which which certainly I think has had an impact. Um, I I find that you also just sort of think a lot about improv. We've probably talked a lot about those uh, thoughts uh, about how to teach improv to beginners and um, what is fundamentally at the core. I'm wondering if there are other. Uh, topics that have been taking up mental cycles for you before we sort of move on to our improv set um, just anything that's been tumbling around for you lately I'd say it all connects back to uh, improv in different ways I find myself um, fascinated by like group dynamics how um, a larger community functions uh, or splits off in different factions, um, how newcomers join a community, how, a, you know, a, how a duo works compared with how a trio works compared with how like the standard improv team of eight people that like auditioned for something and were smushed together, how that works. Um, how diversity is represented in, uh, a small community versus a large community, um, how publicity and marketing work, uh, all, you know, all of those kind of side factors to the actual creative process. Yeah. I, and I think those are fascinating topics as well. Um, uh, do you have any that are, uh, forming into, like ideas or thoughts uh, to uh, I, I sort of want to dive into some of them uh, though I know we're, we're already running a close to time here um, but uh, or, or are they, they just more things that you're saying like I've been thinking a lot about this uh, in a more like this is something I want to uh, have an effect on or think about or improve does that question make sense? Like, are, are are there some of those that you're like, yes, I feel passionately that this should be this way, or is it just more stuff that's been stewing for you? I think it's more just topics that are ancillary to improv. I think people um, will get into improv in like high school or college, or um, just as like a whim instead of cooking class or ceramics or whatever people. <laughs> Yeah. Um, tank instead of going to the gym. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and then they dive into the overall world of that community, of that art form, and then start to form different projects, side projects, do different things, and eventually get to a place where they're um, creating their own idea of what improv is, uh, their own curriculum, uh, their own coaching practices or making up their own exercises and then maybe forming their own uh, like pet projects. Uh, and I think that that's really fascinating, you know, how that arc of creative development seems to be similar in a lot of improvisers as they go along from, yeah, I got put on an improv team to I'm carving my own path um, and seeing what is of particular interest to me uh, and how that can gel into one particular project or, or goal. Yeah. Uh, and do, do you feel, cause I don't know a whole lot about the Philly community outside of uh, people like yourself that I that come out here or I go out there and chat with. Um, do, do you feel like the, the scene there is supportive for, the various parts of that path. Um, so, so typically I feel like there is some support, although we didn't have it for a long time to bring new people into the community, but 
um, varying levels of support in terms of getting people to uh, know how to do their own projects and so forth. Uh, like, how do you feel Philadelphia is at, at supporting people along various legs of that journey you described? Uh, I think it's good. I don't have a lot of familiarity with other improv communities, but I see a lot of opportunities for people to um, teach if they want to teach, coach if they want to coach, um, do special projects. Uh, it's uh, We're gearing up towards uh, a big Black Friday comedy marathon that Philly has where people can just get together and play with each other in a lot of like fun bit shows over uh, Thanksgiving weekend. You know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of things going on that get people connected and then can lead to um, more growth as a community and for each individual. Yeah. Well, let's do some improv. My goal is to try to take what, I just gathered from this interview and do my best to kind of play the way that, um, that I believe, you know, Matt Holmes wants to play. Uh, so I'm going to try, yeah, that's, that's my goal. And then we'll talk about, um, you know, uh, how you felt about the set and how I felt afterwards a little bit. Um, so here, let me try to sum up how I would gather it and you can, can tell me where I'm right or wrong. So I, I think it's just the three simple rules and thankfully I took your workshop so I'm going to try to, in each scene, um, you know, uh, A, keep it simple, uh, which is not always easy for me, uh, um, but then just try to make sure I'm doing something early on, um, do that uh, thing again, um, which from your workshop I know means, you know, not exactly the same thing, but we'll do it again. And then once we're on the same page about what our what we're doing, uh, we'll, we'll do it bigger, heighten. Um, Anything else you want to add or suggest? If yeah, my goal is to like do the kind of improv that you enjoy doing. Uh, no, I think that that's a good approach. And like I said, I don't really worry so much about the framework. Um, uh, all people really care about is the scene that's happening at that moment. That sounds good. I've got a dictionary by me. Do you want me to just flip through? Oh, yes. That's perfect. Uh, I'll thumb and you say stop. Stop. Uh, There's a big illustration of a reindeer on the page I stopped on. Oh, great. So, Uh, reindeer. All right. So, lights come up. Santa. Uh, Santa. I've got some. I've got some bad news. Oh, I'm always open to hearing bad news, so long as it's the honest truth, Eloise. I uh, I I know that you value truth among all else in our elves. Um, I enjoy I'm... fun, toys, and truth. That's the North Pole way. Santa, I would never lie to you, okay? I would never lie to you. I wouldn't think for one minute you'd lie to me. I, I'm way Do I have too... a reason to suggest you'd lie to me, Eloise? No, I hope you know that I've always been totally truthful because I'm horribly scared of what kind of magical torture you would do to anyone. Well, you know... I... Know that I only torture the bad elves who've who've lied, even even the ones who've done wrong but have come clean and told me the truth about it. They escape my horrible evil torture. Um, Santa, can you tell me more about how you torture people before I? What's the point? You have nothing to fear. You're an honest elf who always tells me the truth. Okay, but, you know... No what reason what... to see these awful devices behind me that could stretch you to three times your size or turn you into just a spattering of magical dust. 
I've heard some really bad things about that candy cane Iron Maiden um, for What flippers. have I said about rumors? Rumors are lies that are repeated. Mm, okay, okay, okay. Um, I, w- I just want to come clean. Um, good, good. Come up on Santa's lap and tell me your truth. I'm, I'm, I'm terrified of your lap, Santa. I'm terrified. Oh, you know that the right knee is just, just for the bad elves who told me untruths. I'll put you on the left knee, provided by the time I've set you on my lap, you've told me an honest truth, Eloise. I killed a reindeer. I killed a reindeer, Santa. Well, my. That's the truth. That's the total truth. And I told you right away. It was 20 minutes ago, and it was an accident. It's a shocking truth. But I'm glad you told me. I, if you just wait here one minute, I'm going to have uh, I'm going to have my assistant go and validate some of the details. Uh, yes, yes. May May you? Could you go outside and see if one of the reindeers was accidentally killed? It, it might look. It might. It might not look like an accident, but it was, and that's the God's honest truth. I swear. I the swear truth, to swear to Rudolph. Truth is, the truth is that you you killed a reindeer accidentally, but made it look like a homicide. Oh my God! How did you know? Santa knows all. So if there's anything you're not telling me. It'll be the left knee for you. You said the left knee was for the righteous, and the right knee was for the wicked. There's a lot of layers to the left knee. Oh, my God. (laughs) Well, I can't say I've ever tried reindeer meat before, but I'm an open-minded man. You are going to love it, okay? This is organic reindeer meat. It's locally sourced from indigenous people, and it's cruelty-free, cage-free. These are free-roaming reindeer. We have a rooftop garden deck, and it's just like reindeer heaven for them. And wow. then we, when they die of old age, we you know, harvest the meat. Now, I hate to be this guy, but I would just, I would just feel better. I'd feel more comfortable eating the reindeer meat if I could just pop my little head up there and see those reindeer running free on the rooftop. We have an app where you can watch them, but we do not let any humans up there, okay? They, they do not know that they are, you know, our food slaves. Oh, I shouldn't say food slaves. Um, yeah, the choice of words seems a bit disconcerting. Well, I'm not in marketing. Um, I won't. You know what? You know what? I'm not going to hold it against you. Let me just download this app here. Oh, okay. That phone, that's an iPhone 4, and that is not on our list of approved, you know, cruelty-free made in America devices where we'll allow people to download our app. Uh, well, you know, I understand that. Uh, maybe you can just show me uh, some sort of video feed or, or some such where I can just, just see those reindeer running free and I'll be happy to consume one of these burgers. Okay, it's pork. What? That's the truth. It's just pork. pork. It's well, just I never in all my days. I, you know what? I'm going to take my iPhone 4 and write you a negative, strongly worded Yelp review. Uh, this always happens. Um, hello and uh, welcome. I, uh, my name is Tlingit. I am, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Did you say Tlingit? 
That's correct. Tlingit is my brother's name. Oh. I've never met another Tlingit. Well, uh, yeah, it's actually pretty common up here. Uh, you know, Tlingit is like John or I don't know. What's a common name down, down there for, for white people? Uh, Parker? I don't know. But Tlingit is, is really run-of-the-mill. Oh, well. It's lovely to meet you, Tlingit. Okay. I, can I uh, show you around? Uh, as you sure. can see, uh, this is uh, our tribal village. Um, everything is, you know real historic and stuff and authentic. Uh, this is all you know, hand-carved. I have to be honest. Uh, I had a different expectation of what it would be like. Uh, you, you don't seem enthusiastic to tour me around your village. Um, well, that's kind of a stereotype of the happy, cheerful Eskimo who's going to build you an igloo and let you you know, rub your nose against me. All of that is is just lies, you know, like made well, up. That's fair. Uh, I, I didn't mean to step on any toes, though. Uh, uh, you, 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 I, all I said was you were in a customer service industry and it would be appreciated if you'd have a, you know, smile on your face. Uh it's actually really offensive for you to ask me to smile, okay? Uh, my existence here is not for your entertainment, uh, and your happiness does not uh, overpower power the value of, of my experience. You know, and you're right, and I had conflicting feelings about this whole thing, uh, though you're selling tours of your reservation, uh, right? I'm not... I'm not overstepping my bounds uh, being on a tour that was uh, was sold for uh, as a tourist attraction. Right, but uh, like you don't go to the Holocaust Museum and say like uh, this is a real downer. I did just that actually when I toured the Holocaust Museum. You gave the Holocaust Museum like a negative Yelp review for being depressing uh well i suppose it wasn't their fault but it is it is a depressing place well that's sort of the point of the experience you know you don't you don't watch like a a sad movie and then get mad because you're crying so you're telling me that the point here is that i I pay and then have to settle with my own internal struggle about what i have paid to do yeah, you've you've been living in a world where it's the Indian who cries and you feel good for like, you know, giving a buck or whatever. This is a this is a different world where you cry. Wow. Really makes you look inwardly at your sort of own it's a mirror of the soul. What kind of person am I that I would have paid this money to see this attraction? A person who needs to sign this and say that there are no refunds. Uh, I thought that was pretty good, (laughs) considering the the situation. Yeah, Uh, this is a bit uh, interesting over the internet. But yeah, you know, I, I felt like we... Uh, didn't stress too much about like making it perfect, but like got into something right away. Uh, thinking again about how improv is, you know, I think a lot of times people think about improv as like art therapy or something like a, a parlor trick for the person doing it. Um, but I like to remind people that like it's a performance for other people. Um, and, you know, you could, if you wanted to make it perfect, you should go somewhere and write the perfect thing. Um, What's more important is like not having dead air and having you as a performer have something that you can build on. Yeah, it was a bit 
so given that we were on video and mostly just talking, I felt a bit of a challenge to do something and that doing something was like creating a line of dialogue. Um, but uh, even despite that, I felt like once one of us made a move, it was pretty easy. Like early on, it was easy to see, okay, like I feel like this is sort of what the scene is about. Um, I'm going to kind of keep repeating that um, and, uh, and build on that. Probably the clearest for me was that first, the like Santa scene. And there maybe was some murkiness later on, but like I was like, okay, I just need to kind of keep threatening you with torture uh, uh, for, you know, if you don't tell the truth. Um, in different ways, which was fun and easier to play out. Um, yeah, it is. It is. It is. Uh, I'm, I'm in a way of like done this long enough that I'm. It's hard for me to not overthink, or I'm just bad at this. Like, I'm, it's hard for me to not overthink like the game view of it. Um, but uh, I'm trying to like keep it simpler for this, and that was an interesting challenge for me. Well, I think it's not so much about. Um having the game be simple or complex on purpose. It's about just like having something. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes that's real, you know, just a kernel that you're um, figuring out. And sometimes it's like, oh, there was like all kinds of like themes going on at the same time. And there was like a story or a plot or like even a mystery. Um, you know, setting it up to be some sort of like a punchline or a reveal at the end. And uh, I think all of that is part of what improv is. It's just, you know, it's going to be kind of a uh, a mess of theater that you're making in the moment. And the way that you can start to um, hone that is by picking out something to kind of uh, push it, like you know, what is the point? At if if nothing else, the point is uh, that we're gonna play Santa being like a, a torturer, like a truth torturer, something <laughs> like. And I think in other situations, um, uh, improv improvisers or improv schools of thought uh, try to. Um, try to get to that almost forcefully. Like they have like a formula for it or they make it real complex where like each person has to have a want that, and they, it has to be on the surface, but something below it. And it gets, you know, just gets very complex. Uh, and like I said, sometimes it is complex and sometimes it's simpler, but what's, uh, what makes it work is just you deciding something that you're going to play. So it's a more active approach, uh, most importantly. I, yeah, I, and that makes sense to me. Um, I also do feel like, so to add a layer of complexity for me was, and, and you had said too, uh, you're thinking lately about diversity and there's sort of a lot of conversation around this recently um, so a scene like the last one where we have like two white guys playing a uh, unidentified race person and, and an Eskimo, uh, and then I'm in my head about like, uh, there's both, we want, you know, there's both a game to be played and humor in that, and then me thinking I also want to be uh, sensitive and treat this uh, the the race undertone of this with respect. Um, I wonder if you were also in that place, uh, or are you? Do you just say like, I'm going to keep this simple, and we can talk after or later about any p potential implications therein? Um, when we started that third scene, I was like, I got nothing, and that, <laughs> that often happens to me. You know, you yeah. sometimes you, your brain just spaces out. Or you feel like, oh, I've explored all of these different threads or characters, but like I still need to do something more for time. Or, uh, you know, sometimes you're just on the spot. That's what improv is. 
Um, so I think that that was a great example, actually, of how to make your way through what would, for a lot of people, end up, you know, myself included, end up being a terrible scene <laughs> that is not fun for you to do or for anybody to watch. Um, and having some kind of guideline for yourself, whether it's yes and or you know, what I said before, do something, do it more, do it bigger. Um, some kind of approach or magic feather to hold on to is going to help you make it what we can call maybe like a successful scene, something that isn't a total mess. Uh, and <laughs> I think we found something in that scene uh, and it might not necessarily be perfectly defined, and if we were part of an ongoing project, we might sort of uh, talk more at length about what we steer into, what we steer away from, um, have those larger conversations about um, the material itself or how we approach the material. But at the very least, when you're in the moment and you have to do it, you can do something, you know, that you're not frozen that you're not like freaking out. Um, yeah. And I think that the same as for a, a complete bit beginner when they're like, how do I get started? That's what I've been focusing on. And the solutions that I found for that moment, I think are also helpful for me almost 20 years into doing this in a moment like that, where, uh, you know, I'm well into a, a scene and I'm a more experienced improviser. How do I, you know, not talk about it? Um, I want to ask you a couple of questions that were sent in um, via the social media. Um, so this is like our continued Q&A. Um, and then we can probably wrap up. Um, so do you have any tips for uh, and some of this we may have covered, but we'll you can let me know if we did. Uh, do you have any tips for staying in a sort of unconditional acceptance yes and mode, um, and not getting uh, into a default judgment when you get really weird gifts from people? Um, uh, I, I think this is specifically talking about the Mad Ann show. So if your audience member is just throwing a bunch of like weird or negative or whatever it is that you, um, yeah, how do you stay? And, and maybe some examples you have of how do you stay in that um, positive improv, like m make this into a gift or, you know, uh, sort of mode. Uh, I think it's really about um, just kind of reminding yourself that the other person is a person who's just as much, um, struggling through it as you are uh, and trying to think of their needs uh, at the same time or above your own. Um, so just having that approach of whatever they do is valid, you know, and worth considering. So it's almost like a, um, a philosophical approach as opposed to a, a particular technique. Yeah. That, I think that's a great point of view. Um, makes sense to me. Uh, maybe this is related. It's similar. Uh, so for you, uh, what is a good scene partner versus a bad one? Um, uh, and then there was a follow-up that's basically the same as the first question. So yeah, do you do you have a bad scene partner that you could imagine? Um. I would say that a good scene partner is somebody who is just willing to go along for the ride uh, and, you know, can maybe eventually open up and start doing things that I can work with. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in Matt and the other person, you know, part of the, the game of the show is that they don't have to be a, a good improviser or a performer or anything like that so it's okay if they're not great but it's it's certainly helpful and appreciated if 
they, you know, trust me to get us to someplace where they can start playing too. Yeah. Uh, and the final question uh, from Alexis is, do you still have that VHS tape of the ghost fashion show sketch? I do. Somewhere <laughs> in my closet. Uh, and I think that'll wrap things up for us. Do you have anything that you would like to plug on the podcast? Um, basically just, you know, check out mattandimprov.com. Uh, people can see what's going on, video, photos from shows, or contact me if they are interested in, like, coaching or um, just chatting or bringing me someplace. Um, you know, no. everything's there. I'll second that. We we brought Matt out to Pittsburgh for he did uh, he performed Matt and he performed in a um, monologist show that we have and did two really really awesome workshops. Uh, so bring Matt at, Matt uh, out to where you are. Special thanks to Michelle Horsley for our opening theme and of course Matt Holmes for this and past episode. Surf over to brianmgray.com slash podcast. And leave me a review on iTunes if you can, because it helps people find the show. 